I was eating a grub in the Amazon and it tasted exactly like coconut cream pie. The gun goes off and I have it resting on my foot. At this moment, I'm sure I blew my foot off. It was just this idea that I can't photosynthesize. I'm going to have to kill something. You know, like these sharp teeth I have aren't meant for plants alone. It's funny because even on a show where you're surviving, you really can't kill anything that's cute or that someone's going to have an emotional attachment to. I like hearing people's stories of failures way better than hearing people's stories of successes. It sounds crazy, but I feel like the more close calls with death I have, it's like the more I feel alive. This is Laura Zera, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I would rest at peace for eternity if my legacy was that I made a positive influence on the non-hunting public about what hunters are and what hunting is. I finally got my buck on our last real day of hunting. So a pro-hunting organization is voting against hunting. And that says anti-hunting to me. There was a year straight where I was averaging up to 200 death threats a day. And I hugged it. Like, I just wanted to hug a bear. It's proven that the average steak in a grocery store touches 50 to 100 hands of machines. And we're putting that into our body. Hey, y'all, Cable Smith, host of the Lone Star Outdoors show here. This is Adam Weatherby. I'm Corey Jacobson with Elk 101. This is Christy Titus. Hey, folks, this is John Bear. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. So getting on to today's episode, I am excited to have Laura Zara, primitive survivalist. Y'all may recognize her name from Naked and Afraid. Uh, She's been all over the place. She's a knife maker. She is a, uh, has just a lot of, Lived a lot of life, has a lot of amazing skills. I'm very excited to talk to her. Laura, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. So one thing I always like to start out with, and you have, I feel like, a a unique history, an interesting kind of intro to the outdoors, but I just always love to start with what was your introduction to the outdoors and as well your introduction to hunting? Yeah, I was kind of a weird kid, and I felt most at home when I was exploring the wilderness. Uh, I use that term very loosely here. It was basically abandoned uh, woods, tobacco fields, overgrown secondary growth forest at the end of my street. I grew up in the suburbs, and that was kind of the wilderness I had access to. So I used to explore, build forts, kind of kid stuff, and it just got crazier from there. It was just the place where I felt like I was the most myself and it kind of became this obsession. And so 
you grew up uh, exploring, you know, this quote unquote wilderness outside the suburbs. And uh, I mean, it, it would it would it be uh, out of line to refer to you as kind of the wild child of the neighborhood? For sure. Yes, I was very <laughs> much the wild child and very much the weird child. Um, I used to just, you know, it started out going with friends and then it kind of got to a point where, you know, I kept getting my friends in trouble because they'd come <laughs> home all scratched up, missing shoes. And um, so I, I started to get more extreme as time went on and um, it kind of became more of a thing I did alone. Um, but it, it was, it's kind of funny. I mean, my closest friends when I was younger were kind of the wild animals I was hanging out with. I used to just stock up and see how close I could get. And, um, probably one of my favorite memories is just getting really close to this pack of coyotes. And they got so used to me that I would just go down every day after school or on the weekends. And, um, they would just let me hang out with the pack, which was pretty wild. That is, (laughs) that is absolutely insane. So you were like the, the full on coyote kid. (laughs) Absolutely. I used to um, raise, raised by the wild animals. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I I like to think I was accepted in the pack, but I think they just kind of tolerated me being there and being in the suburbs like that. It was, you know, they weren't they weren't terrified of humans, but they were wary until they realized that I clearly was just going to sit there and um, pretend I was one of them, as you know, kids do. So um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about just how your presence in the woods affects other animals, how birds can kind of call you out and give you away unless you're acting like the other animals do and just paying attention to these little signs and ways to act and ways to move so that you don't create this huge disturbance. So because I paid attention to those things, I was able to see a lot more than, um, you know, a lot of people were. It kind of became my home. Instead of being this alien that would enter the woods, I would just almost become this other person when I was there. Um, kind of like, you know, what I thought of as like what humans kind of used to be and um, just fit in instead of be this alien exploring an alien landscape. I was just going home. So that's what it always felt like to me. Oh, that's amazing. And and this definitely sheds some light on, you know, we were emailing a little bit back and forth as we were scheduling this podcast. And, you know, you did make a comment uh, about, I had mentioned that I was thinking about going to hunt coyotes. And, yeah. uh, you know, you did call out, that was the one thing you absolutely will not hunt. Yeah. So that certainly sheds a a lot of light on, uh, on, uh, on uh, why. On why. <laughs> I always tell people, I'm like, I I probably shouldn't say this, but I'd probably be more likely to hit, kill a human before I kill the coyote. It's just kind of how it's, how it's always been. I feel like I have this real understanding and agreement with them, and they helped form who I am so much that, oh my gosh, it'd be like, like when people show me pictures of them going out coyote hunting, I'm like, cool, you just shot a member of my family. Like, think I'm gonna like your photo I don't think so <laughs> That's so funny. um yeah no I mean that absolutely makes sense I mean if you and, and there's nothing wrong I feel like with feeling that way about coyotes you know you're not going to hear me criticize that thing everyone's going to have different attachments to animals everyone has their own reasons behind hunting and what they feel is a, a you know and as long as it's done ethically uh absolutely. you know I'm not going to I'm not going to judge you at all for your choices like that. And I will never judge someone who goes out and hunts coyotes. I mean, that's like, I, I really feel that 
we all kind of exist in the world and do the best we can with where we are and what our kind of relationship to the world is. And I have nothing wrong with someone going out, but I'm not going to come with you and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to like <laughs> use what I've learned to help you kill one. But if you want to go out and hunt, that's totally fair. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, you know, God knows people judge me for hunting in general all the time. So it's, I don't think it makes sense. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to defend that there's some animal that's greater than other animals and they don't deserve to die. But for me, it's just like, you know, mm-hmm. a personal choice. Well, and, you know, we all, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but uh, most people are, are very familiar with the whole, uh, uh, what is it like Joe? I think it was on Joe Rogan, the, the certain acceptable levels of, of killing animals or uh, right. um, like the offensive offensiveness level of, of different animals when they're, when they're killed, you know, and you, yeah, no one cares about killing fish. Yeah. You start it like a chicken or a fish or something. And people are kind of like, it's cute. Ah, not a big deal. And then you kind of go up the line, you get to a deer and people are like, mm, okay. And then you get to maybe like a package of, of, of bear meat. You know, it's like, okay, it's wrapped up. It's a package of meat, mm-hmm. but it says bear on it. That's kind of weird. Okay. Then you get to like a picture, you know, kind of the levels of offensiveness of various meat on, on social media, if you will. Yeah. And when we were doing the filming of the show, we were told we weren't allowed to kill any cats, dogs, or monkeys because they're, you know, obviously people relate to them more. And then going on from there, if something's too cute and you kill it, you're going to be a monster. So it's funny because even on a show where you're surviving, you know, we're really out there living this surviving and we need to eat, but you, you really can't kill anything that's cute or that someone's going to have an emotional attachment to. And I do think it's interesting. Like in a lot of countries, it's totally okay to eat horse, but here in America, we, for some reason, place more value on horses than pigs and cows. So it's totally cool if you want to eat a pig or a cow for most people, but you talk about eating a horse and there's all these Mm -hmm. emotions involved. And I I do, I think it's really interesting because I mean, I don't want to criticize it too much because I'd be a hypocrite, but um, (laughs) the, uh, the value that we place on certain life, if you know, you'll, you'll eat a, um, a bunch of mussels, you might eat 50 mussels in a sitting, right? And that's fine to take 50 lives, but you kill a moose and you eat off it for a few years and you're a monster. So Mm -hmm. where does it, where does it, where does it come from? I don't know. It's interesting. Well, and it's uh, funny enough. Uh, all of the horse people I know, uh, <laughs> um, the, like the hardcore horse people that are like, have been working with horses their entire life. They're honestly probably the first ones I would ever <laughs> hear talk about eating a horse. <laughs> They're probably like, Oh, I tell you what, I used to shoe horses and there were certain horses that I used to work with that there was nothing more I would have liked than to put them in my meat grinder. <laughs> I love horses, but. Uh, um, uh, have you ever, uh, are you, do you watch uh, meat eater at all on Netflix? I don't, I'm, I'm the worst. Like I haven't even, seen some of my own shows i'm just not <laughs> like i just don't have the attention span for tv i'm terrible oh yeah well it's it's just interesting i only bring it up because there's one episode where he's out with like uh, a tribe in uh bolivia or i believe or something it's some south american tribe and they go way back and they're going out hunting and they end up ha- uh he ends up having to eat a monkey with this tribe mm-hmm. and he's sitting there the whole time and he's like, I really don't know how I feel about this right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
but then I remember he brings it up and he's like, but that's kind of a privileged thing to be worried about eating a certain type of animal yeah. because it's cute or I have an emotional attachment to it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, re- it really is. I mean, it's, it's funny that talking about, you know, eating insects, people have the, you know, not because they think they're too cute or it's weird, but this idea we have that it's wrong or gross or bad. And even people who try to eat wild game of any sort for the first time. And a lot of them will straight up admit, I don't know why I think this is gross. I just think it's gross. It's funny, whatever you're used to and whatever customs that you think are normal, it's so hard to step outside that and be open. I I was eating a grub in the Amazon and it tasted exactly like coconut cream pie. I mean, this is like one of the tastiest morsels of food you can ever imagine having, especially in a survival situation. But the fact that it's little legs grab onto your tongue and <laughs> when you bite it, this like juice comes spraying out in your mouth. Like it, there's something about that that makes you feel like it's gross, even though it tastes so good. It's just so strange how strongly ingrained those ideas are. So, so you're telling me that a, some grubs, there's like bugs out there you can eat that taste like a dang coconut cream pie. Oh my God. So delicious. There's some Asian water beetle that supposedly tastes exactly like a juicy pear, but I guarantee you when you put it in your mouth, you're not excited and smiling for the first time. But, uh, yeah, some of them are super tasty. I am Even cockroaches. Cockroaches are really good, but you kind of can't get past the idea that you're eating a cockroach. <laughs> I, you know, I, <laughs> I think I could do it. I like to say that. And I think, you know, I think about it and I've, I guess maybe I've just, I've seen enough other people, uh, enough people do it otherwise on TV shows and this and that to where I'm like, okay, I'll give it a try. Albeit this is coming from the same person that can't, I can't even look at a spoonful of, of cottage cheese without gagging. But um, I would, I would honestly probably I hate mayonnaise. So it's fine. Oh, there you go. There you go. Um, but I don't know. I liked, I like to say that I'm like, yeah, I would totally give that a try, but I guess in the, mo- it, it comes down to like being in the moment. I'm like, yeah, I'm not totally sure one way or the other what I do <laughs> when, when those legs are, when those legs are kicking and crawling and like you said, grabbing on them, like grabbing out, sticking to my fingers on her or on my lip. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think this bite might be a little odd. The hungrier you are, the easier it is to kind of get over that mental, emotional hurdle. Mm, I could see that. I could see that. But so, speaking of speaking of all this, all this eating, and you know, that kind of uh, circling back to a little bit of your your history and your introduction to hunting was, you know, you have had kind of a unique journey into eating all of this, uh, all of these various creatures because uh because of your history you weren't initially a meat eater were you no i you know i meat when i was a kid and then i had to do a report in school on any topic i wanted and i actually loved eating meat so much that i decided to do my report on meat and eating meat and so we had to look up the history and i looked up the history of slaughterhouses and then current day slaughterhouses and I was horrified. I mean, I didn't, you know, you don't think about that when you're younger. And growing up in suburbia, it wasn't like I really understood what it took. So reading about factory farming totally freaked me out. I was just horrified I'd been eating this meat for so many reasons. And 
I became a vegan and um, I was that way for a while all the way into college and I never realized how um, how crappy I felt but I had this anthropology teacher um, he grew up in a tribe in Venezuela and um, his dad made first contact with these people and so he grew up kind of as a kid in the tribe and I always said you know if I could find meat that I felt good about I would eat it. And he built his own bows and he would go out and he'd go hunting. And, um, I decided, all right, well, you know, if I get the opportunity to eat some meat he's killed, I'm, I'm cool with that. So I ended up going over to his house and he had this meat, this venison that he hunted and he'd been marinating it in like the dregs of a cask of wine that he'd also made. And I was so excited to eat meat again that my first piece of meat after being a vegan was, um, actually like a chunk of raw marinated venison and I ate it and everyone told me, Oh, you're going to get sick after you eat meat because you haven't eaten it in so long. And that was like total, that was total bull. Like I felt alive for the first time. I didn't realize how crappy I'd felt. I had this one bite of meat and it's like, I was bouncing off the world. <laughs> and from then on, I was like, all right, well, clearly I need to find a way to get more of this stuff. So I actually started digging up roadkill. Um, my my college was on a highway, and I used to just cruise the highway and find animals that had been hit, and taught myself how to process them. And um, I started eating the meat, and it was, you know, I think it freaked a lot of people out, but it was <laughs> local, organic, and fresher than the meat you get in the grocery store. So that was that was what I did for a while, um, and then I realized that kind of the natural transition was into hunting and I built my own bow with, with my professor who taught me how to build a bow. And, um, it kind of just escalated from there. And it was just this idea that, you know, I, I can't photosynthesize. I'm going to have to kill something. Um, <laughs> if I'm killing a plant, who, who is it for me to say that a plant's life is less important than an animal's just cause I don't understand it. It's still alive. And so it was kind of this weird philosophical journey of, um, these animals have a great life. This is like this dance that's been going on like since the dawn of time, um, predator versus prey. So who am I to say that I shouldn't be, that I'm not worthy of being what I'm meant to be, you know, like these, these teeth, these sharp teeth I have aren't meant for plants alone. And, um, so I started hunting and it was, it was a pretty incredible transition because it really brought me closer. I mean, I thought I was already pretty close being in the woods, feeling at home. But the relationship that I have now as a hunter is like so much richer and better. And, um, I know that probably sounds weird to people who don't hunt, but I think a lot of hunters can kind of relate to that. Just the way you look at the land and interact with it, it totally changes. And, um, it was probably the best thing I've ever done in my life. Well, and it's, it's such an amazing you it, you change from being a passive observer in nature to mm -hmm. suddenly becoming an integral part of it. You are you're a participant in mm -hmm. in the whole ecosystem of nature, and and no longer in a way that's destroying it, but in a way that's that's progressing it and building it um, for the for the long term. And that again, that may sound like an oxymoron. Yeah. By killing something, you're, you're helping to grow nature, but it's all, all part of, uh, you know, renewing, uh, uh, renewing the, the pools of genetics and, and helping balance populations. And Absolutely. 
yeah, investing in conservation. Oh, for sure. And I just feel like humans throughout history have had this integral role as these caretakers of an environment. And we're a lot weaker than, um, you know, most animals physically in a lot of senses. But we have this ability to kind of look at the whole picture and choose what we what we take and what we leave. And I think that kind of understanding and, you know, like you said, the way you become a part of it instead of just an observer, I think it's just, it's really important for, you know, being able to relate to the land in a way that makes sense and is positive and, um, you know, can ultimately be really helpful. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. And it's, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, a lot of people, you know, kind of jump in a little bit back in your story. A lot of people, you're talking about your first real bite of meat in years was marinated raw venison. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd had I'd had wild game meat before, but the first bite of meat I ever had from my, my own deer, the first deer I took was a very thin, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a big chunk or anything. It was a very thin slice of just, it was salted and peppered raw venison and it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And there's just, there's something special about knowing the quality of that meat. You know, it's not, it's not like some, you know, some animals where you're worried about trichnosis or E. coli yeah. Um, you know how that animal has been taken care of, where it came from, mm-hmm. you know, your hands have been the only one that touch it. So you're not worried that, you know, that raw meat is an amazing thing to try. Yeah. I actually eat a lot of my meat raw still. Um, I, I prefer the flavor. I feel like my body just, I don't know. I, I like it so much more, but I'm not going to go to the store and buy a steak and have have it raw because I know too much about where it's been but you know when I do all my butchering like I do a lot of gutless butchering now um, at least in the beginning before I go and and grab the organs I want just so that I know okay no nothing has ever touched this like there's never been anything on this meat that I have to worry about because I was there I yeah that's one of the things I love about hunting is that you have such a connection to it and you see it through the whole process so if if there's some kind of contamination that went on, I know about it and you can really eat it and know that, know that you're going to be fine. And if there is um, something I'm worried about, or if it's, you know, I'm worried about parasites, I just freeze it for two weeks. It kills anything. And then, then I eat it, eat it after that. And I've, you know, <laughs> knock on wood, I don't know how many pounds of raw meat I've eaten, but I've, I haven't, I haven't been sick yet. So I just jinx myself, but. <laughs> you know, not, yeah, I'm, I'm knocking on wood for you over here too. So, um, <laughs> But I love, I love your process through this. And just, I love hearing about the the thought process and, and the whole journey you went through into this, because uh, it's very, it's very different than so many people, you know, it's, and it's, it's different from how I got into it. It's very different from how, you know, somebody that maybe grew up walking through their woods with their granddad's gun uh, went through it. But you came at it from very much a perspective of, of being in control of every single aspect from start to finish and being responsible for that and building it from the ground up from, 
building your first bow to now you uh now you make your own knives correct mm-hmm. yep yeah i think i just have an obsession for for learning things <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like i just want to know how to do it all when i was little i used to obsess over the fact that if you were to take me back in time and you know introduce me to these humans who had no idea what the modern world was like and i tried to explain to them what it was like and they're like okay well how do you make a computer you know because everything in their world they would know how it was made and I wouldn't have the first idea how to tell them how you make a computer and we're so compartmentalized in our in our jobs and our work and what we what most of us do that really you couldn't exist on your own it's almost like we've created this society where we really need each other to survive which is beautiful but in some sense, it just makes you so reliant and so needy. And I I was just like, wow, I really want to learn, you know, you put me out in the woods and all these animals, they know how to exist and they know how to live. And I have to go home and sleep in my own bed and have my mom cook me dinner from the food she bought from the store. And it was like, what's wrong with me? You know, I can't, I know how to take care of myself. And it just created this whole idea of like this obsession of wanting to know how to do everything. And if I'm going out in the woods and I want to bring a knife, I mean, sure, I can use a rock, but knives are way more convenient. So it's like, well, I want to know how to make the knife and I want to know, you know, how to work, how to work the metals. And um, it's all just kind of like this obsession I have where I really don't think I'm good at anything, but I know how to do a lot of random things. And I just, I never want to stop that process. Like there's always something Mm -hmm. more to learn. And I've had all these you know, I was a butcher for a while. I was a taxidermist. I was a farrier. I have done all these random jobs, but it's like, as soon as I was proficient, I'd find the next one. Cause it's just like this insatiable hunger to keep, to keep knowing. Cause I just learn so much from all of it. And I feel like the more you learn, you know, like learning how to make knives. Now, every time I pick up a knife, I'm looking at it completely different. And I feel like it's like that with everything. I, you know, I feel that so very much because I've always been that way with, with everything. I see somebody do something and it doesn't matter what it is. I want to learn how to do that. And I've, I, and I think some of it's, I've always had a very process oriented mind. So if you can give me something to do step by step, I can, I can pick it up. And Mm -hmm. I just, you know, it's not that it's not that I don't think, okay, yeah, you know, it, it would probably be, uh, quicker and easier and more efficient for me to buy an knife or do this or that. And I, I may still do that occasionally, mm-hmm. but there is a satisfaction and there is a, a self-reliance and a pride uh, that goes into at minimum knowing you could do something. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean you always have to do that. Yeah. Like you're not going out shoeing horses all day long, right. but you know how to, if you needed to. <laughs> totally. Totally. And I mean, I think even if I decide that I don't want to keep doing that, like even with knife making, it's like I might not have the time or resources in some place or the setup to to make a knife. But if I wanted to buy a knife, well, now I know why that knife costs $600 versus the $20 one that was made in China. It's like I can appreciate what goes into it. And um you know, maybe, maybe in that moment, I'll choose to make my own and maybe I'll choose to spend the 600 bucks because I know that it's worth that money because I know it went into it. And so it's like, even if I'm not doing it, I can appreciate it on a whole different level. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like all of this is made so with the environment we are today, you know, with the whole COVID thing, with all the shelter in place, 
I feel like this is has been brought to the surface so much. This whole concept of in the world are complete and utter interdependence rather than independence. And again, uh-huh. it's it's amazing that that we are all so interconnected. It's it's uh-huh. an awesome thing. But I'd rather have that be by my choice rather than because of my inability to take care of myself. And you just see that. Yeah. With everyone, I don't know how to get food anymore. I don't know how to get toilet paper. I don't know how to do anything unless I can go to the store. Right. Yeah, I think that was the biggest trip for me. It was like the whole toilet paper thing and seeing how much people freaked out about toilet paper and going online just to see how much people were selling things for and just thinking, you know, how our ancestors would have died laughing if they could ever know <laughs> what what we were prioritizing in this world and how, you know, just kind of hopeless we've become. And I'm not putting myself out of that group because it is like, even though I know how to get all my own food, I mean, I love, there's certain things that you just get used to buying and you want to have. And we get so spoiled in that. And, um, it's funny. It's, it's kind of, it's interesting. And then when you strip it down and you, you don't have those things, I think if nothing else, it, it creates more of a sense of gratitude when you do have it, because I think no one has appreciated toilet paper in the, at any point in time in the world more than now. And I don't think that's ever going to change. And people are always going to remember that that's, that's now something that for some reason we all really value a lot more than we thought we did. It's, you know, and I, and, and again, you know, in this whole conversation, I don't think either of us are commenting like, oh, you know, modern luxuries are evil. Yeah, again, we're, we're sitting here, you know, you're on a phone. I'm on a computer here. Yeah. Got all this amazing gear. I've got my phone here to the right of me, my iPad to the left of me. I've got a, I've got a dang Alexa right. sitting right in front of me <laughs> that can turn off my fan and my lights. We were right. laughing about that earlier. Right. Um, and I love all this stuff, but that doesn't mean I can't get through my day if all of it suddenly disappeared. Right. Like, uh, you know, it's I'll survive if, uh, if heaven forbid, don't get me wrong. Anytime I, I go somewhere and I have to stay in a hotel and I wake up, my first instinct is to tell, uh, tell Alexa to turn on the lights. <laughs> <laughs> I always do that when I can't figure out how to use something. I'm like, Alexa, open the door. Oh, not not because I really think it will, but it's just funny the world we live oh in. Oh my god! But you know, and I I do I love like I think it's such it's such an incredible gift that we have all these amazing things, and I think the important thing is just to appreciate them because it's so easy to just rely on it and be upset when you don't have it. But I think just being able to have that gratitude of like, okay, I will be fine if I don't have these things, but I'm super happy that they're around. And when they do work, they sure do make life easier. Um, I, that's my biggest hope for this whole pandemic is that people will come out with a greater sense of gratitude and what's important rather just than just feeling entitled to all of it. Um, because it's like, yeah, what, what really are our basic needs? And so many people, if, cell phones all of a sudden disappeared they wouldn't even be able to find their way to the grocery store and um it's just it's funny how quickly it happens but knowing that you don't need it to live and that you're gonna survive without it is is important so what just from your observation of what's been going on what i I guess then this could be a fully loaded question here kind of it's very broad 
what do you see as the most critical skills that people are are lacking these days? You know, maybe just even in this in this whole COVID situation, I think just amplifies what we're seeing. But just in the world today, what are some of what are some of the skills you feel like? Because uh, because you know, not everyone needs to build a bow from scratch, build their knives, and and then go out and use that to hunt, right. but what what are maybe kind of the more important things that people should be focusing on for their lives? I mean, I think it's amazing what people are capable of if they're put in a situation. And I think you never really know what you're capable of until you're in that situation. And I think the mental aspects far, like the importance of them far outweighs the physical skills that you have and being able to make the best of a situation. I mean, I've talked to people who are just devastated that they can't, go out to the bar and socialize with their friends and it's ruining your life. And then I've talked to people who are like, Hey, I've been doing so much stuff that I normally wouldn't do. And I lost my job, but now I have all this time to pursue my true passion and being able to look at things and find that silver lining and put a positive spin on it and appreciate the things that you are getting to do that you wouldn't be doing and looking for those little gifts in the chaos. I think the ability to mentally hang on to that, as opposed to focus on what you're missing out on and what you've lost, that's just, that's what's going to get you through things like this. And whether you're in a survival situation and you need to focus on what you have, um, you know, if I'm in a survival situation, I'm not going to focus on the fact that I don't have this, this, and this. I'm going to look around me, see what I do have and work with what I have to make it happen. And that works physically and that works mentally. And being able to do that right now, it puts you in such a better state of mind and then it's it's just amazing what you can get through and how it's not you don't just feel like a victim you kind of feel like you're in charge of your own situation and in a time where we really are not in control more than ever and it is a scary world those things that you can control focusing on them is really important right now Mm -hmm. that's what I think anyway you know, I, I talked to, I talked to uh, a lot of guys that are big fans of Jocko and, you know, his, he's very stoic kind of motivational dude. And, you know, one of the big things is I was watching a video the other day and he's talking about, you know, all the time people, you know, come running up to him. Oh, everything's going wrong. I don't, you know, uh, and, and he's like, okay, you know, he's like kind of good, <laughs> good. Glad everything's going wrong. Yeah. And, and, you know, and all these people, they're freaking out, they're freaking out and they're freaking out and they're like, they're like, oh, everything's going wrong. Why do you keep saying that? And he's like, because now you can get better. So what are you going to do about it? Exactly. Um, it's like, okay, yeah, everything's going wrong. Panicking, you know, panicking isn't going to get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. So if everything's going wrong, simple question, what are you going to do about it? You may Absolutely. not be able to solve the whole problem, but figure out what you're going to do. Yeah, I think we tend to hang on to things because we have them. And when you lose everything, it's almost this amazing opportunity to recreate your world as you want it. And that sounds like a really privileged thing to say, but I just really think it's possible. It's like when you you don't have those things that are holding you back, but they're comfortable, you feel uncomfortable and it's scary, but it also just creates this blank slate and you don't have any of those things holding you back and tethering you anymore. And you really can start over again. I mean, I feel like every single massive failure that I've had in my life got me where I am, which, which I'm really happy where I am. And if it wasn't for those huge failures, I never would have been able to take a step back and look 
at how to recreate something better. And it, it, across the board in my life, like physically and mentally, every failure that I've had is just the best thing that ever happened. And you don't see it in the moment, but it's all about how you react to it. And that's all you can control is your reaction to it. So if you want to be the victim and wallow in your misery, that's totally your choice, but there's another way, you know, there's, there's another, there's another process to go through. And I think it just can create something really beautiful. You know, it's, it's really funny. You, as you're saying that I'm sitting there kind of thinking about my, my journey into doing what I'm doing now and, and really all the things that have prompted me to get to the place where I'm at right now have, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call them failures, but, but things failed in general. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a failure on my part or something or something I was doing that I failed at, but, but whether it was a relationship or a business venture or whatever it was, or a, you know, business deal, things, things failed. And, you know, at the time, immediately, you know, your first reaction is like, I don't know what I'm going to do. This is hopeless. Mm -hmm. But if you develop, if you develop that, that recalibrate, develop that uh, mental toughness, that change in attitude, how you approach that and you, you just, you take those failures and decide, okay, well, okay, that failed. I'm going to learn from that. What's next? What is the next step I take? Rather than being like, okay, I had this vision. Now it's completely destroyed. Okay. Yeah. That, that may not be a possibility anymore. So just focus on what you're, what you're going to do next. It's, it's huge. Yeah. Big time. I mean, I kind of look at life. Like I look at me learning the Baudrillard, which is friction fire where you know you basically rub two sticks together and it took me so long to be able to do it but by the time I finally got it I learned every way to do it wrong and so now it's like I actually own that and if I'd gotten it right the first time I wouldn't know how to mess it up so that would have been a huge disservice and but when you know every every bad thing that happened that can happen and how to work through that it just gives you a set of skills that you wouldn't have otherwise had and I think Emotionally, it's the same thing. I mean, I know every way to screw up a relationship. And now, you know, you learn how not to and you can have success. And I just think failure in business, failure in anything, um, whether it's your fault or not, um, you, you can you also just learn the skills of getting through that and picking up the pieces and starting over in that perseverance and knowing that you can lose everything and you're still okay. Cause I think if you never experienced failure, you, the first time you experience it, it just feels like the world's going to end. And um, <laughs> usually it's not. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think, I think with all of that, you just fully described my, uh, my hunting career, learning every way to do something wrong. And anyone, anybody that's been following my story for a long time, they may kind of roll their eyes at me, but they know it's true. They know that's an absolute fact. If I have, uh, particularly when it comes to elk hunting, if it can be done wrong, I have, have done it. If it includes injuries, if it includes screwing up stocks, yes. screwing up calls, whatever it yes. is, I've done it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm right there with you. And I like hearing people's stories of failures way better than hearing people's stories of successes, because usually they're pretty funny after the fact. And I mean, it's always, it's just so real. You know, I, I hate like, not that I really get to watch many of them, but like the hunting shows where everyone just goes out and they have success. It's like, 
that's not real and that's not life in general. Um, I think the failures are usually more interesting. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So, so because, uh, you know, because the failures are more interesting and we so often learn so much from them, do you have any, uh, any examples of something, you know, maybe related to the outdoors where you, you may have failed pretty spectacularly, but you learned, uh, uh, learned a lesson from it or you, you found a way to turn that into a victory or growth? Oh God. I mean, pretty much every time I've ever gone out in the woods, there's failure. I mean, just going out, like when I first started, um, surviving and I lived by this philosophy, the greater the need, the greater the result. So you don't, you don't know what you can do and you don't even know what your problems are going to be. And you can't troubleshoot those on YouTube before you go out in the woods. You know, you, you go out there and you find these problems and they come up and you never know how to deal with them. So, I mean, I still get thrown on my ass every time I go in the woods, which is why I love it so much. But in the beginning, I mean, I was constantly just cold, tired, hungry. Um, I mean, the first survival trip I took going out and building a shelter that I thought was bomb proof and getting rocked by a storm and, you know, getting near hypothermic and trying to start this fire and being so frustrated that nothing that I'd done before that, you know, works in the backyard does not work in real life. And that's just, I mean, I feel like that's why I learned survival is because I didn't just learn it from a book and then just assume I, I knew it. I had, I was super humble from the start because I went out and I tried it and I, um, I mean, yeah, pretty much every time I go in the woods, I have a near death experience. Um, <laughs> I just went out in the woods for a, a month. Um, a couple of April's ago, I, I spent a month out in the, the wilderness in Idaho and, um, just crossing a Creek, simple Creek crossing. And is one of those things you knew you shouldn't be doing it. And, um, it'd been raining all day and the snow had been melting and uh, I'm right crossing at the mouth of this Creek, right where it dumps into this river with class five rapids. And I'm trying to get across it. And about halfway across, I realized this is moving way too fast. I feel the rocks moving under my feet. It's already up to my thighs and I take the next step and it's over my waist and I'm getting pushed and I'm just barely you know, leaning into the water, trying to stay upright and had to lunge for the, the opposite uh, bank and was barely able to wrap my uh, fingers around a tree and pull myself out. And I can't feel my legs because it's so cold and the adrenaline rush was so intense that I just collapsed on the ground. And, um, you know, I had a backpack on, so I'm sure that would have pulled me under and never mind the, the rapids and the freezing cold. And it was like, even when you know what you shouldn't do, sometimes you still get into these situations. But now I look at creeks totally differently because that was really close. I mean, that was a super close call. And if I'd been an inch short, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. So it's like, that's what I love about it is like, if you don't have those moments where you experience that and, and get to feel alive, then you don't learn, you don't grow. And I don't know. I, I just don't think that's not a life I want to, I want to live. It sounds crazy, but I feel like the closer, the more close calls with death I have, it's like the more I feel alive. It's not because I want to die. It's because I want to live. And that's, 
that's why I love the wilderness is because even when you think you got it all figured out and you have a handle on things, something happens, something always happens. I feel like a lot of hunters have had similar experiences where, you know, you're in the moment and you get caught out in a storm and you don't know which end is up and all of a sudden it gets real fast and there's no one there. You can't, you know, walk into a Starbucks and grab a cup of coffee and warm up. Like you're, you're in it and you have to rely on yourself. You're the only person there who's going to help you. And um, moments like that, I just think are really important for your soul just to, just to feel like you're alive and, you know, for that gratitude that, um, that we were talking about a little while ago. Absolutely. I mean, you don't, you don't realize often how valuable something is, how beautiful something is until you're, and it's sad. It's until you're on the verge of losing it often. Mm-hmm. Um, you get, you have that comparison and you, you really, really start considering what you have mm-hmm. when, when you're that close to losing it. And it's an amazing thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I just, I laugh because Idaho has kind of been the bane of my hunting career too. My very first elk hunt was, was back in Idaho and I went in solo and ended up tearing the meniscus in both of my knees on oh, like my no. second, third days. And yeah. And so I just laugh anytime somebody talks about Idaho or tells me a story about getting injured or almost dying in Idaho. I'm like, you shake my fist at the state, you know, <laughs> and I love it there. Yeah. It's an amazing place, but but man, there's a, a lot of wilderness out there. Yeah, it's incredible. I had a, a really incredible hunt out there um, a few years ago, elk hunting. And it it was definitely a classic um, case of failure. Basically went out to this area where there was a ton of snow. I mean, we're talking like four feet of snow, using snowshoes, camping in, or hiking in all my gear, camping out in it. And um, there's less people there because no one wants to deal with that snow. Everyone was low, so me and my buddies went out and we were camped up pretty high. And, um, it was, it was a brutal hunt. The terrain was brutal. Um, all the elk kind of got pushed up from the bottom. So there was, there was a ton of elk, but, um, probably, you know, the first three days I saw a million elk and I just didn't want my hunt to be over yet. Cause I had, <laughs> I had two weeks out there. So, um, finally it's like the third day and I decide, I'm like, all right, I'm, I see this bull and I just know he's my bull. It's like, I can't even explain it. I just know he's my bull. So I take a shot and I'm, I am not, I do not pretend to be the best rifle hunter in the world. Like I, you know, started with bows and I feel comfortable with them. And I feel like anything that has technology with it, I can and will screw up. (laughs) So I I take this shot and everyone tells me like, get ready to take your second shot because oftentimes even with perfect placement, you need to get a couple in and well, I'm really confident about my shot, but as I shoot, I move and all the snow that's been accumulating on the tree above me dumps down, covers uh, my scope, my gun's covered. So I'm like, oh my God. So I'm like, all of a sudden, all the elk that he was with stand up and there's six of them and I can't tell which one I shot. So I'm waiting. I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. And um, they all start running. So I start following them and end up um, finding his tracks and they start to go downhill and the rest of the elk go uphill. So I'm like, cool, he's hurt. And, um, I start tracking him and I track this thing all the way down the mountain, miles and miles. Um, we get out of snow line and we're into all of a sudden rain and it's pouring rain. And Uh, I'm like devastated because I know he's close. Like there's huge pools of blood where he lays down and, um, you know, I'd kind of been pushing him more than I wanted to because the snow was so intense. I was worried about losing, losing his trail. 
So I'm in the rain and I stay there till dark and I'm devastated. I never, never find him. So I make like this really sad trudge back to camp, which was long and grueling. And it's, you know, 2 a.m. before I get back and I'm exhausted. I wake up super early the next morning, go to find him and spend two days tracking in this huge area. But I, I can't find any sign of him. And I'm just like devastated. I'm like, great, you know, classic wound a bowl really bad and can't find it. And I'm like ready to throw in the towel because I'm like, I took my shot. I got my bull and I didn't find him. I don't deserve to shoot another animal. And days go on and um, all the elk have like left the area. And um, I'm just spending every day moving, just looking and just feeling super depressed. And it's the last day of the hunt. And um, I go out on this ridge that's just really beautiful. It's like my favorite, favorite ridge in the whole mountain. And I'm moving down it and this, this fog is just, it's awful. It's so intense and it's really beautiful, but it's just like, I'm not, I'm going to literally bump into an elk before I see it. So I'm looking around and I just get this weird feeling and um, look over my shoulder and pull my binoculars out and look, and I can just see the tip of this one antler coming out behind this, this brush. And I'm like, there's one elk here. You know, I'm, I have to make this happen. Yeah. You know, I only have five hours before the season's over and like I'm getting this thing. So, um, he was in the middle of this patch of, patch of brush. I think it was seeing out It's like, it's, it's really, really loud to move through. So I ditch my backpack and I just have my gun and I get down on my back and I'm like an inchworm going along, just creeping. And, um, I thought it took like half an hour, but it ended up being a three hour stalk. And Ooh. I finally get, I mean, by, by the time I have a shot on him, I'm like 50 yards away wishing I had my bow and um, I'm kind of slowly sitting up and I go to push my safety off. But because of all the snow and the weather and, you know, all the wetness my I've had with my gun, I didn't have a stainless steel gun. It, the safety was rusted shut. So oh, I, couldn't, no. I couldn't push the safety off. So I'm in full panic mode. And as I'm like pushing, I just feel the wind shift. And I just look oh. up, it's like in my mind, it's slow motion. I just see the moment that my scent hits his nose and he stands up and I'm like, no. So I'm like reaching around the ground and I find a rock and I am slamming the rock into my safety because I don't have my bag. I don't have any tools. I have nothing. So I'm laying down again and I'm just banging on this rock while I'm laying in all this brush. The gun goes off Oh my and gosh. I have it resting on my foot. <laughs> so. I have no, at this moment, I'm sure I blew my foot off and I know the elk is gone. Um, so I sit up and grab my foot and somehow it's still there. And this elk is just running. So I, um, I stand up and I am like an emotional basket case at this point. I'm like, I cannot believe how bad I messed this hunt up. Like, this has just been like catastrophic. And, um, he's taken off. He like runs down the first dip and goes up this other finger ridge. And I'm like running at this point And I'm like, clearing my gun and like it's it's jammed now and it's it's just a mess so I'm running after him and I go to take another shot and it was like the most Hail Mary of Hail Mary shots that I would never ethically take and I, I have no idea why I did it but I literally just like total Hail Mary shot and um ended up being a 480 yard shot which Ooh. I am pretty much comfortable shooting at like 150 yards and um he just dropped like a stone and rolled down this super steep embankment. And, um, I hit him right in the spine and I have no idea how, 
So I'm freaking out. I'm like, for, I'm not a crier, but for some reason I was crying. Like, it was weird. So I get up to him, and I'm looking to see where the bullet hit, because I'm sure it hit him in the spine, but it hit him, like, right, right behind the shoulder. And as I'm, like, sticking my finger in the bullet hole, like, how did it kill him so quick? I realized that that bullet hole had already started to heal up. And it was the bull that I'd shot on the third day that somehow was totally fine, even though it, like, hit what I thought was perfectly. And, um, yeah, I had spined him that second time. But that was, like, I can't believe that hunt came together. But I think that'll always be my my favorite hunt because it was just, like, I was, I was in such a bad state of mind. I mean, I just thought I was like, I, I'm never pointing a gun at another animal again. This is awful. And then it all worked out somehow. So yeah, that happened. (laughs) That is absolutely insane. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty wild. Oh my gosh. I cannot think of a better spot story to, to finish on. Um, so, wow, that is absolutely incredible of a story. (laughs) Um, so if, uh, if folks wanted to, uh, hunt you down online, uh, and follow along with all, all the adventures, all the craziness, where can they find you? So I am, I have a website, which is laurazera.com and the social media I'm most active on is Instagram. Although I've been taking a hiatus from social media, which has been really great, but I'll be back on there at some point. And, um, you can find me there on Instagram. So it's just my name. That's my handle. <laughs> All right. I will make sure to link to those on the show notes page at the wild initiative.com. Uh, so one thing I always just like to finish up with, you know, say somebody is, uh, you run into someone, you know, they, they know you're a survivalist, you're a hunter, you're uh, an outdoors woman you know, they come to you and say, Hey, I've always been interested in this, but I don't know. I don't know anyone that does it. I've maybe lived in the city my whole life. I don't know if this is something I can do, but I'm really interested in it. What words of encouragement might you give them? Just just do it. I mean, it's like I said, the greater the need, the greater the result. And you have no idea what you're capable of until you try it. And there's no better way to learn than to just jump in and don't just dabble, like jump full in. And um, I think it's one of those things where you'll be surprised what you can do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on uh, the call with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this podcast inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.
Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment.